today we're going to begin the book of Genesis. And the, the word Genesis itself really means the beginnings or origins. And actually the first five books of the Bible are actually named for something in the first phrase or verse of the book. And so Genesis, as we're going to see later, is a, a book about beginnings. And before we really get into the sermon today, I want to talk just a minute about kind of evolution and creationism and all of that kind of stuff. And, and uh, I know some of you are like, oh, yes, Genesis 1, give it to those evolutionists. And some of you are going, oh, it's got balance. And let me just say this. I think it's really important uh, for both scientists and theologians to be honest. I think too many of them on both sides get too excited about a piece of evidence that supports their side and they run with it to a conclusion because of presuppositions. Here's what I would tell you. There is no way to scientifically prove creation. There is no way to scientifically prove evolution. There are evidentiary pieces on both sides that to support a a theory. And if we did not have God's word, I think you could say there are pieces on both sides that promote a theory, okay? But we do have God's word. And that's a big piece of this puzzle. And so I hope you're gonna see today that um, I want us to be honest. I want us to be honest about what the Bible says. I want us to be honest about science. Um, but because we know, because here's the point, folks, when, when I say so something can be scientifically proven, what that means is we can reproduce it. Two plus two is four. I can scientifically prove that. I can show you time after time after time after time that it's the truth. I can scientifically prove that ivory soap floats. I can bring in an aquarium. I can open a bar of ivory or dump it in. I can open another bar of ivory. I can dump it in. I can open another bar of ivory and dump it in, and they all float. That's scientific proof. Proof. You cannot prove creation and you cannot prove evolution because none of us can go back to the beginning of time and scientifically prove it and none of us can reproduce it. That's what I'm talking about, okay? Now, the reason I share all that with you up front is because I had an uncle, I called him Uncle Doc, I I think when I was really young, was the head of uh, uh, surgery at one of the hospitals here in Kansas City. Very, very smart guy. Man, just probably the most brilliant man I've personally known and had a relationship with. And one of the things that he taught me when I was probably 15, 16, 17, and I was just beginning to like uh, get my, you know, foundational principles really solid, he said to me, he said, it's really interesting to me how two people can look at the same piece of evidence and come to a completely different conclusion. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I have an atheistic friend of mine who's a surgeon with me at the hospital. He looks at the human body and he says, isn't that just amazing? Isn't it just amazing how how scientific chance could lead to the human body and all of its intricacies? And he said, I look at the human body and say, there's no possible way that could exist without intelligent design. He said, so we both see the, the human body and we both come to complete conclusions because they're based on the presuppositions that we have, and we think that they support them. And so all I'm saying there, folks, is this is not a time to, to get into this scientific you know, discussion and proof of we can prove this or we can prove that. or that. It just doesn't work. But we do have God's word, and God's word points some things out that we need to see today, and I hope we'll at least clear our minds up in a few things, all right? 
And so let's talk about this book, Genesis. We're starting this process, and we are not going to be going through this book uh, verse by verse like we do a lot of the, the New Testament books uh, simply because we'd be in Genesis, it'd be the beginning of the end of our church because we'd be in it for like 12 years, okay? Uh, and so we're going to go through the first two chapters today. I'm not going to um, read all of the verses like I usually do uh, for the sake of time, but we have a reading plan actually in the Fog app. There is a reading plan where if you would like, and we would like you to, to read every week the passage that we're going to be preaching on, you can see in there the chapters that we're talking about or will be talking about. You can read ahead. You can know kind of what we're talking about and get a really uh, much better understanding of the passage. Listen, this is the book of beginnings because it's the beginning of creation, but it's also the beginning of the human race. It's the beginning of sin. It's the beginning of death. It's the beginning of marriage. It's the beginning of family. And it's even the beginning of biblical salvation. This book, Genesis, lays the foundation for everything else in the Bible. If we don't understand Genesis, honestly, we approach everything else in the Bible with possibly some wrong suppositions, presuppositions. This is why atheism and theological liberals want to kill it. Okay? If they can somehow disprove or malign the truth of Genesis they can pretty much deconstruct some very key foundational principles and beliefs of both Judaism and Christianity. The author of the book is Moses, and he wrote these first five books of the Bible. We call them the Pentateuch, because there's five of them. He wrote it around 1400 B.C., centuries after the actual events. So does this bring into question its truthfulness? Does this bring into question uh, what it you know, how, how truthful it could possibly be. Nobody was there to watch this or write it down. There are no firsthand accounts of creation except for God's, for God's. And we're going to see here that Jesus himself talked about the very truthfulness of the book of Genesis. In John 5, 46 and 47, Jesus says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You see, Jesus himself testified that the book of Genesis, what Moses wrote, was truth. In Matthew 19, Jesus quotes Genesis when talking about marriage as though it is the authoritative passage that Jesus is teaching on. In fact, Genesis is quoted over 200 times in the New Testament. And the first 11 chapters of Genesis are quoted over 100 times in the New Testament. And so we can see that at least the New Testament believers believed solidly, and Jesus himself believed solidly that the book of Genesis was true, it was authoritative, and it was from God himself. Now listen, this is not a science textbook, okay? This does not answer all the questions of how did God do this? This is a narrative it was written to develop our worldview and build a foundation of beliefs. It was not written to answer all of our scientific questions about the origin of the universe, but it was written to give us a spiritual and relational way to connect with God and how to view God. You know, when I was in the waiting room, one of the waiting rooms uh, for Dave Ross's transplant surgery, there was a brochure there on why to be a transplant donor. And it gave really some compelling reasons on why to do this. 
it did not answer any question on the science of transplants. It didn't say how it was done. It didn't give me any, but it did answer the question why to be a transplant donor and what the outcome would be if a person did this. It's kind of like the book of Genesis. It's not a book to describe all of the hows. It is a book to describe to us why. Why is this the way it is? If you read Genesis as a science textbook, you'll be greatly disappointed. That doesn't mean that it's void or, or it's in conflict with science. It's simply not written for that purpose. It simply doesn't have all that information in it. God doesn't think, uh, for whatever reason, that he's sovereign and we aren't. For whatever reason, he doesn't think that telling us how is going to help anything. What we will see through the book of Genesis is man's continued and growing embrace of sin and rebellion and God's continued grace through it all. Man, I was just thinking about this when we were singing that last song. Through it all, God's just there. He's, he's, he's helping us. He's with us. And eventually, we'll see coming out of the book of Genesis, man's incredible need for a Savior. His incredible need for the Savior. And so today, we're going to see that God is the creator of all. It's the first principle. And the first, uh, we see the first principle in this passage. And the first two books is what we're going to cover today. We see the first principle in the first four words of the Bible. And they are critical. They are critical. And we see the principle that God has always been. God has always been. I know that this is already controversial to those who want to deny God and demean his character. He has always been. Look at the first four words of the very first uh, verse of the very first chapter in the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God. Now that is a sermon series all on its own. Atheists say that, that um, uh, uh, you know, God doesn't exist. He's not there. It's just a figment of our imagination. It's what we want to be, but it's not really. Well, the Bible says that God does exist, and he has always existed. This beginning actually means before the beginning. So before the before of the before, of the before of the before of the before of the before of the before. I hope you get all that down in your notes. God still existed before that. Now, I know that kind of blows our minds a little bit. But it's saying God always was. He is outside and before creation. Before anything was created, he was. He has always existed outside of time and space. Now, we can't even think in terms of outside time and space. I think about trying to tell a, a stick man who lives on a two-dimensional plane, a sheet of paper, I, I think about how to, how to help him understand what a ball is, what a sphere is. And even if you throw the ball through the piece of paper, all he's going to experience is a series of circles. He can't understand anything on a three-dimensional plane. Folks, we live in a three-dimensional world, but God is outside of that. God exists outside of time and space. We can't even comprehend where he exists. In fact, this word for God here in, in Genesis 1.1 is Elohim. E-L-O-H-I-M, Elohim. 
It's used over 2,500 times in the Old Testament to describe God. Now, this is a very interesting word for God. Because, first of all, the meaning of it is the most powerful one. The most powerful of the powerful. But here's the really cool part about it. It's a plural noun used in a singular way. Now, for those of you who high school English class was too far ago, it demonstrates immediately the trinity right out of the gate. For instance, if I said, hey, in the sentence, it's singular. I'm using it in a singular way, and yet it's a plural word. I bought a new dog's today. This word is used singularly in all 2,500 times plus that it's used, but it always is a plural word. And the whole point is, folks, it implies one God in three persons, the Trinity, from the very beginning of the Bible. And we see scripture supporting this. God the Father was not alone when creation was happening. In the beginning, God, and I know many of us go, oh, well, God the Father right there, right? Well, what about John 1.1? I'm going to come back to this a couple times today. But look at John 1.1 and then verse 14. Here's what the Bible says. In the beginning was the Word... And then verse 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You see, Jesus was in the beginning too. Jesus existed, pre-existed. Now for us, our eternal souls are created at the point of conception, we believe here. I think the scripture teaches very clearly. But Jesus didn't come into existence. When Jesus was born in the flesh, he didn't come into existence. He pre-existed because he has always been part of God. And actually, that's not true. He has always been God with two other parts of the Trinity. And I know if you're here and you're saying, well, that's really confusing. How can it be three in one and all the same? And I know. Okay, It's one of the mysteries of of biblical Christianity. Uh, We can't understand that just like we can't understand time and space and how God is outside that. But I want us to see from this this first declaration. By the way, this is not an argument God is making. He's declaring this. In the beginning, God. A very important thing I want us to see from this is this, folks. It says, in the beginning, God, not in the beginning, me. The universe does not revolve around us, what we need, what we want, Any of us as an individual, the universe just does not revolve around us. I am not the star of the show. You are not the star of your show. God is the star of everybody's show. And any other view is already spiritual heresy. God is. He always has been. Next principle we see in this passage is that God spoke everything into existence creating everything out of nothing. In Genesis 1.3, 1.6, 1.9, 1.11, 1.14, 1.20, and 124, we see, and God said. In Genesis 1.3, and God said. In Genesis 1.6, and God said. In Genesis 1.9, and God said. In Genesis 1.11, and God said. In Genesis 1.14, and God said. In Genesis 1.20, and God said. In Genesis 1.24, and God said. 
Look what I'm doing. Wow. She came to me. Okay. Sorry. A little moment there. Folks, we need to get this. We need to really get this. God spoke and everything was created out of nothing simply because he said it. He speaks and it appears. Now, the voice of God is described as the Big Bang Theory to those who want to eradicate God, but they cannot eradicate the truth of the creation story. They give it another name. Let's go back to John 1 and see how Jesus was involved in this process. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, nothing exists outside of God making it. Nothing exists outside of God speaking it into existence. Let's go back to Genesis 1, 1 and 2. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There's the third part of the Trinity. The Spirit of God was hovering over the creation. We see here that the Trinity was involved in the creation of everything. Now, folks, this is critically important to our understanding. God is the only actual creator that has ever existed in the universe. Now, Everyone else on the planet is just a combiner, okay? Now, that's a word I made up. When you look up creator in the dictionary or on Wikipedia or whatever, people like composers, authors, inventors, it lists other people as creators. Well, folks, these are not creators. These are combiners. I've written songs. A composer combines existing musical notes, existing musical pitches, existing musical timbres, rhythms, and chord progressions. No musician, no composer has ever created a sound vibration that didn't exist before him. No composer has ever created or had the ability to create a human ear out of nothing that could experience sound or music. The reality is God is the only creator and the rest of us are combiners. So you invent something new, great. You put these things together and here's something that's never existed before like this, but all the parts did. Reminds me of a a joke about the uh, scientists that uh, all get together, the smartest scientists on the planet, they get together and they challenge God. They say, God, uh, we've got the technology now to do cloning and other things, and, and we want to challenge you to a man-making contest. We want you to make a man, and we'll make a man, and we'll just see who the best uh, man-maker is. And God says to, to them, fine, but we're going to do this old-school way, okay, out of dirt, and the scientist says, fine, we'll do it your way. And he picks up a handful of dirt, and God goes, whoa, 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 dude, get your own dirt. <laughs> right? 
You see, folks, science can certainly combine things that have never been combined before. Artists can. People can combine things that have never been combined in that quite that way before. But nobody has ever, except God, nobody has ever spoken something into existence. This is amazing. I mean, this should blow our minds. God is the only true creator, and he created everything just by the sound of his voice. I couldn't even get my kids to do what I wanted them to with the sound of my voice, right? All the time. So this is a really important thing, folks. God has always been, he's always existed, and God spoke everything into existence, creating everything out of nothing. The third principle we see in the first two chapters of the book of Genesis are that God created mankind in his image. God created mankind in his image. What is an image? An image is a reflector. It is a picture. It is something that gives an impression of something else that is real. That's what an image is. Sometimes a bad image reflects something that isn't real. But, but listen, here's, I'm going to give you an image, okay? Here's an image. Now, just by that image, just by that picture, everybody probably knows what that is, right? That is a? Right, that's a rose. Okay, you see how images work? That's not a real rose. Can't come up and smell the screen. Well, I guess you could, but it wouldn't smell like a rose. Okay? It's not a rose, but it's the image of a rose. This is a? Piano. Such a quick crowd, I'm glad. Yes, it's a piano, and, and you can't play it. It's not an actual piano, but it's a great image of a piano because the moment you see it, you know exactly what it's representing, right? And, of course, this next image is the new king of Kansas City. Right? <laughs> I had to throw that in there. Uh, you can tell I didn't finish my sermon until yesterday afternoon, right? <laughs> yeah, that's an image of somebody, right? That's not him. He can't throw a pass to you, but that's certainly a picture of him. Listen, God created mankind as a reflector and as an image of God himself. That doesn't mean we're little gods. Okay, that wouldn't be an image. That would be an actual thing. He created us to reflect him. Let's see where it says that in the scriptures, and then we'll talk about what that means. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, then God said, let us make, by, by the way, you see that, let us, it's plural, let us make man in our image, the Trinity, and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female. He created them. Now that's the account in Genesis 1. Some people say that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 prove that the Bible is not true because there's two different accounts of creation. Absolutely not true. If you read Genesis 1, and especially if you add, I think, the first four verses of chapter 2, where God rested on the seventh day, and remember, all of the verse numbers and chapter numbers, all that stuff's been written uh, years and years and years after uh, the original manuscripts. What you get is, chapter 1 is an overview of all creation. Now, chapter 2 says, now, let's talk about simply uh, the details of how man was created. So it's not a separate uh, controversial issue. 
It's simply saying, hey, I, let me tell you everything I did today. I did this, 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 and this, and I went to the Chiefs game, and this, and this, and this. Let me tell you what happened to the Chiefs game. It was cool. And then I give you all the details of it. That's what's happening in chapter 1 and chapter 2. So this is what it says in chapter 1. It's kind of the overview of creating man. And then in chapter 2 it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Let's continue reading in verses 18 through 24. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, or the really correct interpretation of that is, whoa, man, because she was taken out of man. And that's really what that word means. He was taken aback when he saw her. And he said, you know, this is, this is woman. Whoa, man, she was taken out of man. Now let's talk about... Uh, this, I, oh, sorry. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Sorry about that. I missed that part of the verse. Listen, God created man as a much better reflector than any other animal. No other animal reflects God in the same way that man does. Well, what does that mean? Well, here are some differences between man and all of the other groups of animals. Man has the ability to reason. Now, if you say, well, but wait a minute. You know, my dog, every time he hits, hears his food hit the bowl, he reasons in his mind that I'm getting fed and I, he runs to the bowl. That's, that's a little bit different than what we're talking about here, okay? If you think that a dog hearing stuff in their bowl is the same ability that we have to reason, uh, you're not being intellectually honest. Man has the ability to reason in a much more complex way than any of the animals. We use complex communication. We have a high level of emotions and we're able to express them. We build cultures and civilizations. We have a sense of humor, some better than others, I admit, okay? We act on the will outside of our natural instincts. We are self-aware, some more than others. We have eternal souls, and we interact with the creator on another level than any other uh, animal on the planet. God has created us that way as a, a poor but a reflection of him so that we can interact with him in this higher level. We also have the ability, by putting our faith and trust in Jesus, to reflect his character in a much better way. In other words, when, before a person knows Christ as their Savior, sin reigns in their life. It's their, we're a slave to it. We give in to it all the time. But when we realize that we can't do anything about our sin ourselves, we can't be good enough to overcome it, and we put our faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross to die for our sins, to pay for our sins, we put our faith and trust in his gift to forgive us through his death, burial, and resurrection, we can have a relationship with God that is like a father interacting with his children, and he begins to change our character also, and we become a much better reflector of who God is 
than before. And so we see here, folks, that uh, you know, God has always been. God spoke everything into existence, creating nothing, and creating everything out of nothing. And God created mankind in his image. The fourth principle I want you to see in this, these two books is this. It is God's creation was good. God's creation was good. We're not going to look at all the verses, but again, Genesis 1.4, Genesis 1.10, Genesis 1.12, Genesis 1.18, Genesis 1.21, Genesis 25, 1.25, and Genesis 1.31 all say, and God saw that the light was good, that's the 1.4 verse, and then, and God saw that it was good. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Every one of these verses talks about how God sees that particular thing and says it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. Folks, everything God made in its newly created form was good. It was perfect. It was wonderful. It was fantastic. Every other way that you can use to describe it being good, it was. Now, listen, God wasn't saying this as a surprise. Okay, I hear people read this sometimes, read this sometimes out loud, and, and they read it as though God was surprised. Hey, he made these animals. Oh, look, it was good. Hey, I did good. That was awesome of me. <laughs> okay, that's not what it's saying. He's not saying, hey, not bad, God. I'm kind of getting well there. It declares, he's declaring at every single point the purity and goodness of his unadulterated creation. He's saying, look, this, this thing, before man sins, before man wrecks it all, that we'll see next week, before man wrecks it all, in, in its purest form, everything about the creation was good. Everything about the creation was wonderful. And so it's important for us to understand that God as a creator did everything just right. I know there are people that would say, well, it wasn't that good because then, you know, he gave man the choice to willfully sin and he sinned and he messed it all up. And Listen, nothing surprised God. This has all been a part of God's plan. It's all, it's all going just as he planned it from the very beginning. We're going to see throughout the book of Genesis that he already planned for Jesus to come. Jesus was not a plan B, folks. It wasn't like, oh, that's, this wasn't really my plan, but... You know, man messed everything up, so I guess I got to do something about it. It wasn't that way. This has all been a part of God's plan. But he wanted us to understand that what he created before mankind messed it up was just perfect. It was awesome. Again, perhaps all of our questions about how were not answered, but certainly the why is. The last point I want you to see in these two chapters, and there's others, but we just, you know, time doesn't permit us to go through exhaustively. I want you to see that everything was created to point to God and declares his glory. He, again, is the star of the show. We are not. Look at Psalm 19.1. The Bible says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. We were standing out here this morning in the foyer, and somebody said to me, Man, just look out there how beautiful it is. Look how beautiful the snow is on the trees. And, and of course, you know, if you know me, I said, I responded with, yeah, it looks really great from inside here where it's warm. It looks great, you know. But it's beautiful. 
I stood in, in, our, uh, in our kitchen looking out the back door yesterday and just watching the snow come down. Man, it was just gorgeous. If you've had the chance to travel around the world or throughout our country and you've seen some of God's incredible creation, it just marvels the mind, doesn't it? In the Old Testament, when Isaiah had a vision of the Lord on his throne, there were two angels above him, and one cried out to the other this. In Isaiah 6, 1 through 3, actually in verse 3, he says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That means the reflection of God. It's the glory of God. It's, it's, It's making him known. Look what Paul writes about creation in Romans 1, 20 through 21. He says this, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Here Paul writes, folks, listen, everybody, everybody knows there's a God. All creation, including mankind, by their very nature, point to and bring glory to God in some way. Everybody knows this deep down in their hearts. My, I have some atheistic friends. We have some very spirited debates. We're kind to one another. We are friends with one another. We have a completely different worldview, but we don't aspire. We don't uh, agree to this idea that if we disagree, we have to be you know mortal enemies. We are uh, great friends, and every time they say, "Well, you know, there really isn't a God," I always say to them, "You know better. You know better." I totally and completely reject the notion that they don't believe there's a God because God's word says they do. But some intentionally suppress the truth because they disagree with those first four words of Genesis. In the beginning, God. The reality is they do believe that the universe revolves around them. And they don't want to accept that there is a powerful and wonderful God because then they would have to answer to him. And they don't want to do that. That's a spirit of rebellion. Even as the creation forces them to consider God, they choose to worship the creation rather than the creator. So what are our takeaways from the creation story today. What are our takeaways from Genesis chapter 1 and 2? Well, here are some things I think. There is one God who created everything by design and with purpose. This refutes atheism because God exists. This refutes macroevolution because God created all things by design. Nothing happened by chance. This refutes pantheism because God is separate from his creation. He is not the creation. This refutes fatalism. People think that just life is just, this is it. When you die, you're done. Because there's a deep purpose for the creation, folks. There's a deep purpose for it. 
The creation story also tells tells us that there is a powerful and a mighty God who wants to relate to us and with us. So here's what we should do. We should acknowledge God and our accountability to him. See, the problem with actually acknowledging him and his powerfulness and his place in history, meaning before there was history, once you acknowledge that, all of a sudden, we become somehow accountable to him. But that's not something for us to fear because he's full of grace and mercy and love. It's something for us to embrace. I think we should remember all the time that he is the center of the universe, not us. Every single thing that we do should be a reflection of him. We should be uh, understanding and, and, and specifically t- attempting to reflect him well. Now, we don't all do that perfectly ever, but we should keep trying. It should be at the forefront of our minds. We should respond by being the best reflector of God that we can be, and that starts through giving our life to Christ, by asking him to be our savior, to ask him to come and make us something new out of what we are. Folks, these foundational principles are critical to our understanding of who God is, who we are, and we're going to see as we go through this this book that other foundational principles that we're going to set right in the book of Genesis give us the foundation for everything that our Christianity is built on. Practically every single theological truth that we embrace as Christians is somehow introduced in the book of Genesis. We are not God's plan B. Jesus was not God's plan B. We are all a part of God's plan A if we give our lives to him and make him our Lord and master. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we are not lost to just look at bits and pieces of information and try to fill in the gaps. You have communicated to us why you have done what you have done. You communicated to us that you want to have a relationship with us, that you want, to know, you want us to know you. And so you've reached down into history and given us a way to connect with you. Father, we thank you for this book of Genesis that has been protected for five to 6,000 years, really. And we pray, Lord, that you would help it to change our thoughts. You would help us to embrace its truth. If it was good enough for Jesus to see as authoritative, it certainly should be good enough for us. Father, help us to embrace these truths and to be changed by it and be who you want us to be. Help us reflect you to a world that is desperately needing to see you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.